Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, as told in Acts 13, 1-3, and 14, 8-18. We talk about Paul's public healing of a man who cannot walk, and think about the mutual faith that is required between the man and Paul to trust each other enough for a healing to take place. We discuss the confusion of the townspeople who want to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods and recognize the tendency of all humans, including ourselves, to confuse the power of holiness with the physical forms in which we experience it. And we notice Paul's observation that God is constantly working miracles in subtler ways, If we're impressed by a healing, how much more so should we be impressed that God gives us rain, harvest, food, and happiness? The miraculous is all around us, if only we have the faith to see it. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am good. How are you? I am, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good, I'm good. (laughs) We are pressing onward toward the conclusion of the school year, which brings mm-hmm. with it both great joy and consternation in all sorts of all sorts of ways. All the feelings, all the gradings, yeah. all the things. Yeah. It's a time for people to feel their feelings. It is. And for you to feel their feelings too, as expressed <laughs> in angry emails. Yeah. <laughs> I had not fully realized when I was coming through school that like graduation like emotional for professors too. Like that sort of threw me off when I got here. Cause I'm like some students, I'm like, okie doke. Like, don't let the door hit you, you know, Catch you later. but there's a whole bunch of students where I'm like, man, y'all are amazing students. And I'm never in my career going to have students as amazing as you again. And so you experience That's this so kind sweet. of, yeah, you experience this loss. And so far my experience has been a new set of students shows up and they're amazing in a different way. And then, you know, I get attached mm. to them and then they graduate. Now I'm depressed. <laughs> no, it's sweet. I didn't yeah. realize professors felt that way either because I yeah. booked it out of academia so fast. I mean, so like I'm glad when the school year ends because like I can do other things and I can spend more time with my family and whatever. But also there is that sort of, there's a sense of loss every every spring. Mm-hmm. Well, All that's right, depressing. Amy. It is depressing. <laughs> so now let's read the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's depressing, but it's real, right? It is it's real. real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this week we are picking up in Acts chapter thirteen and a little bit, and then in Acts chapter fourteen, eight to eighteen, mm-hmm. which is talking about some of Paul's missionary journeys. Last time we were in the story of Peter and Cornelius back in Acts chapter ten. So, do you have thoughts about things we might need to know to get us from that story to where we're picking up today? I don't know if this counts as like need to know, but here's here's like three quick things. Okay. One of which is really important. <laughs> uh, 
predicted by you and also by Jesus. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus's followers are persecuted by the government, by King Herod. And by the religious leaders too. And by, by, yes, and by religious leaders. And so we get um, a story of an apostle being killed. And then we get Peter being imprisoned. And an angel comes and actually releases him from prison, like opens the doors with, with angel hands, which is pretty impressive. And then here's the big news that's kind of buried in chapter 12. King Herod dies. Yeah. But you would you would miss it if you were just like yeah. kind of skipping along. <laughs> no, for sure, yeah. He's just giving a speech and it says, but he didn't give glory to God. And so an angel struck him down and he's eaten by worms and died. Like he's eaten by the worms before he died, uh, which sounds especially yeah, bad. that sounds really awful. Mm, That's probably not yeah. really how that went, but- yeah, King I Herod mean, has died. I guess that probably happens sometimes. Like in, a, in an ancient world without a lot of like, oh, you know, sanitation, I guess that that probably did happen. I will, Let's not think about that overly much. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, we won't think about that too much. But I, th- um, I feel like we haven't talked about, I mean, we Herod showed up every once in a while in the gospel, but, you know, I feel like Herod hasn't really been a part of the conversation that's true. overly much. This is actually not King Herod the Great who died about the time Jesus was born. Uh, so you remember when Jesus and his family and Matthew's gospel fled to Egypt and then Herod died and then they came back. But mm-hmm. this is his, I guess this is his son, Herod mm-hmm. Agrippa. Anyway, but yeah, the king has, the king has, <laughs> I don't know if I ever had noticed that he was eaten by worms right here, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but he <laughs> was, and that's what happened. The, and I don't know if that actually will feel directly relevant as we're reading oh, the yeah. stories that we'll be reading today, but it's. It is big news. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so the persecution, the miraculous uh, uh, saving of people, and then the sort of ongoing conflict between the kingdom of heaven in some way and the kingdom kingdoms of the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's probably worth mentioning, I mean, it almost goes without saying, but it might, we might as well say, we haven't actually met Paul yet this year. Uh and we talk about him every spring in the narrative lectionary. Paul is a great missionary to the Gentiles. And at, early on in his life, he is remembered as a Pharisee who persecuted Christians. Back in Acts chapter 9, he had a remarkable, miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus who told him to go be the missionary to the Gentiles. And so Paul now has this sort of special mission given to him by the resurrected Jesus to go and spread the gospel among Gentiles. And so much of the rest of the book of Acts is about that, about that story. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first part of the passage today is 13, 1 to 3. The church at Antioch included prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, nicknamed Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, a childhood friend of Herod the ruler, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul to the work I have called them to undertake. After they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on these two and sent them off. First of all, it's probably just worth noting that Saul is the same person as Paul, Mm -hmm. which I guess could get a little confusing because in between these two stories is verse 13.9, where the author of Acts says, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul, who is also known as Paul, and then he's called Paul <laughs> names, for the rest. <laughs> yeah, names are names are complicated in uh, in some of these texts. But they yes. are. 
for sure. Saul is Paul. Mm-hmm. I was always told when I was growing up that Saul's name was changed to Paul when he had this sort of miraculous experience with Jesus. That's not actually how it is told in the book of Acts. It's just that Saul is a Hebrew name and Paul is the Greek form. And so when the text shifts from being mostly about Jerusalem to being mostly about Rome, then he's called by his other name. Mm. It's kind of of an interesting detail of the text, like this bicultural figure and how is he known and called. It it does sort of play, it's this interesting detail that places us, you know, in time where they are, you know, like a Jewish guy who's living in a world that is not entirely Jewish. And so, you know, maybe moves back and forth between being Saul and Paul for a while and then, you know, eventually settles into Paul. But it is, that's a really interesting reflection of just his world as it was. Yeah. He's a really interesting figure because he is a Pharisee and he's shown in the earlier part of Acts as being in and around Jerusalem and, you know, talking to the high priest and whatnot. But he's actually from Tarsus, which is in southern Turkey in Anatolia. And so he's a diaspora Jew, probably Greek speaking, although he seems to also know Hebrew. And then he is uh, later we find out that he's a Roman citizen. And so he's this really interesting sort of hybrid in all the various ways. He's a really complex figure in ways that give him some credibility, mm-hmm. also create some conflicts of identity. Like He's an interesting guy. Yeah. What else do you see in this little introductory section that seems important to our understanding? This is maybe such a funny detail to pick out, but I'm picturing these guys all, you know, sort of worshiping together and fasting and, you know, trying to sort of, I don't know, call upon the Holy Spirit, whatever that looked like for them. And then to have the Holy Spirit just pick out two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, I just sort of assume reading that, that the other ones would be like, hey, what? <laughs> like, wait a minute. But yeah. that's not recorded. And it just, I don't know. I just think it's so interesting after reading the way that the disciples, when Jesus was alive, were all trying to sort of elbow each other out of the way. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, But who's really the best? But yeah. who's going to be at your right hand? But who's, you know, and none of that's recorded here. Who knows what they felt, but they, they just kept on fasting and praying and then laid their hands on the two and yeah. sent them sent them to do the work. That's a really lovely observation, Amy. And because, the, I mean, they do at the end there, they fast and pray on their behalf and then they lay their hands on them and give them the sort of blessing of the community and send them on their way. And so I, I love that, that there's not this sort of jealousy, but this recognition that different people are called to different things. And so these two are called to move on and the others are called to stay where they are, and they do that with with grace and care for one another. That's a really, I had not paid attention to that, but that's really lovely. I bet they felt a little jealous. No, I don't know how they felt. <laughs> they felt their hands were on there like a little bit grippy. <laughs> All right, digging their nails in a little bit. Ow! <laughs> yeah. I licked my finger first, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that stands out to me is this guy, Manan, who is, said parenthetically to be a childhood friend of Herod the ruler. I just think it's so interesting. My translation, Bobby, has him just a member of the court of Herod the ruler. 
Oh. Yours yours is so much more interesting. Yeah. Either either way, it's kind of interesting, but my like a childhood friend of I mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel let me see what our Maybe that's how courts were put together at that time. Or maybe still today. <laughs> yeah, so I'm reading Carl Holiday's commentary on Acts in the New Testament Library. Carl was Carl Holiday was our he wasn't our professor because we did neither one of us really did New Testament at Emory, but he was at Emory mm-hmm. whilst we were there. Mm-hmm. He was a good friend of our professor John Hayes. Lots of stories there, but I, we will not tell them here on the podcast. <laughs> he uh, translates, so the Greek there is centrophos, and he says this may mean brought up together with, or even foster brother, or simply intimate friend. Wow. And he himself translates it as a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Mm. So there seems I to be some intimacy here. Of intimacy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Herod the Tetrarch, who just got eaten by worms. He was just eaten by worms. He was. So he, he's got to have some feelings about that, I would guess. But it does show that the sort of potential for, I don't know, the complexity of the way that lines would have been drawn at that time. You know, yeah. it wasn't just this, you know, like we talk about our ourselves or I talk about myself often as having this sort of like existence in a bubble where it's hard to hear what's going outside, outside of your your sort of first primary community. But if this is someone who grew up with Herod or who really was a close, intimate friend of Herod, yeah. and they they went on really different pathways, yeah. ultimately. So, yeah, there's still, so there's permeability of all of that, it seems. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important observation, Amy. Because we've been, you know, the way that I have tended to talk is about there's sort of a sharp division between the one kingdom and the other. And here it's, no, there's this, like, yeah, there's this guy who used to be a friend of the ruler of the one the one kingdom and now is a member of this other way. But the way that that's told with that, like, intimacy and the, mm-hmm. he still mm-hmm. carries that with him. And, I mean, maybe you imagine that they're still, I mean, they're, they're not now because Hera got eaten by <laughs> Worms, but you might imagine they still, you know, see each other at their high school reunion or whatever, and like, hey, what's happening? Yeah. And so the ongoing relationships, even though the ways have parted. Bobby, does it surprise you that it describes this group of people as prophets and teachers? I just feel like prophet; those are really different categories in my head. Prophets and teachers. That's really interesting. Yeah, because the Holy Spirit, you know, in sort of Paul's writings raises up individuals for these different roles. So there are prophets, there are teachers, there are pastors, so on. So it's not surprising to me that there are prophets and that there are teachers. Mm. Maybe that it doesn't distinguish which one's which one. Yeah. The question of whether there are prophets who are also teachers. I think that's an interesting question. Like some, maybe some of them are the prophets Mm. and some of them are the teachers. One of the things that I like about it <laughs> as a teacher is that the is that now you can be a prophet. The category prophet, and like I think of prophet as like, man, that's a special role, you know. Yeah. And teacher is like, I mean, whatever. And here it sort of says like they're sort of on equal footing in some kind of a way. And you're not even sure like yeah. which one's which. And I I kind of like that that it in my own teacherly reading it sort of amplifies the role of teacher as being an important role in the community. Yeah. Yeah. I can (laughs) certainly see that as a a teacher, as a discerner of truth, as a sort of like lightning rod for truth, not just, just 
I don't know, not, not just explaining things that have already been established and widely yeah. accepted as true, you know? Yeah. All right. So I think for in the narrative lectionary, this is mainly sort of intended to show us that there is a community from which Paul and Barnabas originate, and they're not just out in the world on their own. Mm-hmm. They have been called by the Holy Spirit. They have a, there's a group to which they belong that has blessed them and laid hands on them and sent them off. So they are on this sort of journey, representing something that's larger than themselves, both in terms of representing the Holy Spirit, but also representing a, a community that, they, that they're a part of. So we skip part of their journey uh, through uh, Pisidian Antioch and the then Iconium, which are interesting stories in their own right. My own sort of sense of it is maybe we don't really need to talk about those two in order to get where we're going. Was there anything that you really wanted to bring out? No, I think that's right. So I'm always worth going back and reading what's in the middle, but we're going to skip down and pick up in chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there was a certain man who lacked strength in his legs. He had been crippled since birth and had never walked. Sitting there, he heard Paul speaking. Paul stared at him and saw that he believed he could be healed. Raising his voice, Paul said, stand up straight on your feet. He jumped up and began to walk. Seeing what Paul had done, the crowd shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have taken human form and come down to visit us. They referred to Barnabas as Zeus and to Paul as Hermes, since Paul was the main speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was located just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates. Along with the crowds, he wanted to offer sacrifices to them. That's not how they wanted that to go. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> it is oh, not look at all. Zeus! Okay, <laughs> yeah. this, this really... <laughs> this took a turn. This took a turn. This took a turn. This took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll talk about how they uh, respond yeah, yeah, yeah. to the turn that it has taken here in a minute, but it definitely goes off the rails very quickly. Very quickly. Very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yes. So for the first thing is just this guy who's there, mm, the yeah. CEB who lacked strength in his legs in verse eight. How does the NRSV describe that? Um, a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked. Mm. So at the beginning of this passage, we get this uh, this guy who has not been able to walk since birth. It doesn't necessarily say like what he's doing there. Like why is he listening to Paul? Mm. I'm just curious when you envision this fellow. Like, what do you think? Like, is he seeking healing? Is he just a bystander? Like, how do you relate to this guy? That's a really interesting question. You know, in your translation, I think you said Paul looking at him, he could see that he believed he could be healed. That's the way the CEB has it. Yeah. Mine is a little bit less clear. It says Paul looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Yeah. Which to me was, I don't know, the faith seems maybe not directly in in the fact that you could be healed, but more just you are a person of sufficient faith Yeah. to even, I mean, reading about this guy, I really was, the text goes out of our way to tell us he hasn't been able to walk since birth. And maybe it goes out of its way to tell us that. So it's like clearly a miracle, right? you know, fine. But like imagining his experience 
Like, what would it be like to have faith that things could be different from what it had always, always been for you since the day of your birth? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a real audacity or like a real, uh, I I know the phrase like a failure of imagination. This is like a wildly successful (laughs) imagination. And so I wonder if it was that he... I guess, you know, your question was, do I think that he was seeking healing? Mm -hmm. And it honestly had not occurred to me that he was seeking healing, although I maybe it should have. I just, I see him as a person who is not wedded to things the way that they have been and sort of open to the possibility of the miraculous and, and and is in the right place at the right time. I mean- I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what his life would be like, but in terms of like how he would get around and figure out where Paul's going to be and get over to him. And, you know, I don't know what his life looked like, but I guess I didn't, I didn't see it as quite so, um, direct. Yeah. His, his faith. No, I really like that. I mean, that's sort of what, what my question was, was, was oftentimes when we encounter people in need of healing in the biblical text, like they're exactly like trying to find someone who will heal them. But this, yeah. this guy doesn't seem to be that. I like the way that you, that you draw that out. It just, he's just sitting there and he's, it seems like he just happens to be where Paul is. And so I really like the way that you're framing that in terms of there's something about him. I don't know if it's inspired by what he hears Paul say, or if it's mm-hmm. just the way he is that imagines things that are possible, open to, open to a, change in a way that seems like not based on what you see in front of you, you would not think is possible. Right. Based on your whole life experience. Yeah. It is not possible. Yeah. Yeah. I picture them like, I picture Paul sort of making eye contact with him at some point, you know, it says he looked at him intently and was able to discern by looking at him that he had this faith or, you know, spiritual openness or something. He had some kind of critical ingredient that made possible healing. Whereas someone else, it it seems to be saying, Paul couldn't just go around and heal whoever. Yeah. But he could heal this guy. He could heal this guy. It was interesting to me. I mean, I don't know. These are modern categories, I know. But like Paul doesn't ask him if he wants to be healed. Paul mm-hmm. doesn't, Paul doesn't even really seem to interact with him at all until he says, stand up straight on your feet. He just sort of commands him yeah. to stand up. Does does that strike you as like rude or inconsiderate or does that strike you as like enthusiastic and impassioned or? I noticed in my translation, yours is a little bit different. It says, Paul said in a loud voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, raising his voice, I have. Yeah. Raising his voice, yeah. Stand up. You know, it's such a good question because I know when we've read some healing stories before, I have had that response, like sort of this, this person didn't ask for what you're doing. But I think I maybe, I think I've maybe have like romanticized this story. Something about the way that, I, I picture that I picture uh, Paul looking at him and understanding something about yeah. him, which, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, of course, we all think we can, <laughs> can do that. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't, that question did not come into my head as I was reading this, but yeah. maybe it should have. Wouldn't it be funny if the guy said no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stand That's why you had to say ah, that. No, it's nope. all right. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. No, I like that sense that you're that you're raising about there is sort of an unspoken communication between the two of them. When Paul looks at him, he sees something deeply there and sees that the guy is open and available and has it in him somehow to respond to this. I mean, it raises questions for me in terms of like when we think about ourselves going into the world. Yeah. And, yeah. discerning who needs healing and like, would we, would we want to do it exactly in this way? Maybe not. But I also do think that, I mean, I meet people that I can tell that they are ready for something different. You know, I'm thinking about canvas community and there, yeah. some people come in there and they're just not like, they need a community and like, I'm glad that they're there. They're just not really ready to do something different mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. And then some mm-hmm. people you encounter them and you can see like something has clicked in them that they, that they're ready for something else. And I interact with them in a different kind of a way. Yeah. I don't just yell at them. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's probably but, good. But there's something to that sort of being able to kind of get a sense of people and understand what, maybe what's possible. Bobby, I'm curious about, you know, I'm curious about the detail that he said that Paul spoke in a loud voice. Yeah. And I wondered if it yeah. was, I think the way that I first understood it was like a demonstration of Paul's faith, like Paul mm. meeting this guy's faith with his own show of faith. Because mm-hmm. if if he then couldn't stand up, Paul would look really stupid. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So Paul's got a little bit of skin in the game. I, Paul puts some skin in the game. He does not just go over and touch the guy's arm, in which yeah. case if he can't get up, you know, yeah. no, no one knows what he was <laughs> trying to do. So it's, you know... No big deal. I mean, yeah. once you've once you've spoken in a loud voice that way in a crowd, I don't know. I had not thought vulnerable. of it that way, Amy. I really love that. So he sees something in this guy that says, okay, this guy can respond. And then he trusts the guy enough yeah. to make it public. I'm going to do this publicly because I believe that you can respond to what's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That there's some like meeting, some meeting place between the faith of the two of them. Yeah. That they both believe this can happen. Yeah. I like that a lot, Amy. I like that a lot because there's a mutuality now that I was not reading there. I was just reading Paul as saying it loudly so that people would notice what was happening because he doesn't want to do a private miracle. He wants to do a miracle yeah. that gets some attention so that people, <laughs> like, ideally would worship Jesus, not think he was, you know, Hermes. Right, right. That part went off off the rails a little bit. And I think that your reading is totally supported by the text also. Like, yes, they they are evangelists. They're out there trying to get the word out. And Paul has the capacity to do some healing. And so that's a really great way to get people's attention. Yeah. But that reading is a little bit utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. Like I am using you to draw attention to myself. And I don't like that. I don't want to read it that way. And so I like what you're doing there, that there's a recognition human to human and sort of a mutual trust and something like that. I like that a lot. I also love that Paul says, stand up straight. And the guy leaps up and begins to walk around. So like Mm. the way Paul says it, I kind of expect this guy to sort of like creak onto his feet, like, and the way then it reads, at least in the CEB is he's like, 
springs springs up and is like walking around. Yeah. Which is amazing for somebody who has never walked before. I just like that image of like, it's not, the thing Paul invited him to was fairly, I mean, it's still really impressive, but it's fairly like yeah. modest. And the he guy's response is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot of vulnerability for the guy too. Oh, to try my to goodness, Try yeah. to get up. like. <laughs> yeah. And Paul's drawn all this attention to him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Amy, the, the Bible Worm Collaborative raised the question, and it's a question that I've heard you raise many a time, which is when we read this story as modern people, many of whom have things that we wish could be or would be healed, but seemingly don't receive those healings. I mean, one way of reading this text is that we don't believe enough, right? If we believe we could be healed, we would be healed like uh, this guy. That's, a, that's, that's rough. <laughs> and so I don't like, this is our perpetual question. How do you read a miracle story when you are a person in need of a miracle for whom miracles do not obviously seem to be happening? I don't know that we've ever had a great answer for that or that we're going to have yeah. one today, but do you have any wisdom about how to come at a t- story like this? Um, I was shy from the word wisdom, but I'm remembering a conversation that we had, I have no idea when, where somehow over the course of the conversation, I started to feel like the, the point of the healing is not the healing. Mm. <laughs> you know, the point of the healing is to gesture towards this bigger thing. Yeah. And that's a really sort of hard and unfair position to put us in as human beings who live in bodies that do what they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, like uh, otherwise it's it doesn't make any sense why some people are healed and some people are not healed and there, there's nothing fair about it. There's no yeah. system about it. Yeah, it's interesting. When I read this story this time, that question did not come into my head, but I know that it usually does. It usually does. I wonder what it is about this particular story or this particular moment in your life, or I this suppose. this moment in my life. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's a good question. It's interesting to me, and it probably says something about my own sort of status in the world and my own sense of privilege, but when I read that story, I don't relate to the guy who needs the healing. I relate to... Paul. Mm. And then I, my process is I'm not capable of invoking a miracle like that. Like, I mean, I wish people who needed a miracle, like had Paul instead of me, but they don't like they got, they got me. And maybe there's people around who can do that, but, but I'm not them. And so then I think, well, okay, but I'm capable of healing in other ways. And so then I need to be about the business of trying to enact healing in the world in ways that I can do. And I just need to be honest about the fact that I'm not a miracle worker. And so people should not encounter me thinking I'm going to work a miracle for them. I wish I could. Generally, I can't. But I can go out in the world and try to identify people who are in need of healing, who are able to receive healing. And I can do the best I can with with what I got. And that's what I got. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a similar question or challenge in some ways to like, I mean, all over the place in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, the way that uh, God seems to intervene directly in history, in life on earth, in these uh, miraculous ways that we don't see so much (laughs) happening in, in this way exactly. Yeah. 
can easily lead people to the conclusion that uh, either our relationship to God has changed or these stories can't be true or, you know, like, and it's really hard to reconcile this with the world that we live in now. Yeah. I will also acknowledge that, you know, the world I live in is a rationalist North American white guy's world. Yeah. And I have had students in my classes from other cultures who are like, what do you mean miracles don't happen anymore? Like they Mm. have experienced miracles themselves Oftentimes they're from, you know, the two-thirds world and various cultures that are not uh, as much beholden to the enlightenment as mine is. Yeah. And so I, I want to just acknowledge that there are people who might be listening who would say these kind of miracles do happen. Bobby, I haven't heard the phrase two-thirds world before. I can guess at what it means, but just in case other people haven't heard it. Oh, that phrase just comes, you know, the old language was, you know, America and its allies were the first world and Russia and its allies were the second world. And then the third world Uh was countries that weren't like important enough to be allied (laughs) in either way. And it sort of has this sense of like political alliance and also like third rate. Totally. Yes. It's a ranking. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way it played out for sure. And so the term two thirds world is a way of trying to acknowledge that same sort of identity, but actually acknowledging that it's actually the majority of the world and yeah. that it's, you know, the, uh, it tends to refer to like another way of was saying like the global South, mm-hmm. which normally doesn't just mean South, but it means not Europe and North America kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's, I don't, I don't, I've used that language for a long time. I don't quite remember where I got it from, but that's, that's what I mean when I use it. Thank you. That's much better than third world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So the crowds are standing around and we've already sort of acknowledged this goes horribly awry. And I mean, they think Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. And it's not just the like regular folk, like the priest comes out and it's like, it's you. Uh, Can you just talk to me about this reaction from the crowds? And like, they get it. (laughs) Right? Like, Paul is representing something bigger than himself, but they so don't get it in the sense of, like, what they they connect it to what they've got to connect it to, which is not Paul's, where Paul's coming from. So, can you help me think through this interaction? Bobby, I have a question about something in here that I fear is offensive. (laughs) (laughs) But I will ask it, and you can sprinkle grace upon it. Yeah. I I think I laughed aloud when it said the gods have come down to us in human form. Yeah. Because like, isn't that what Jesus did? Yeah. Didn't that just happen? Okay. So that's not crazy. Sort of. No, I know not exactly. But like, like, like you read this, like, oh, those fools. Why would they think that the gods have come (laughs) to them in human form? Like, that's what the, the story is about in fleshed God. Okay. I'm not going to try to explain what that was. What, what Jesus is, you know, mixing of having, of being a human in a body and being divine and and all of that. But I just feel like that's such a pointed sort of irony. And I don't know if it's intended by the author, but like we read it like, oh, they've, they've got it so wrong, Yeah, but it's not so wrong. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it is, it is so wrong for like the specific, the specificity that they're going for here, but it's actually it's not a crazy idea from the perspective of the New Testament that. Yeah, this is an important point 
really important point is this sort of idea that gods came among people in human form was actually really common in the Roman world. And there's lots of stories, you know, in Ovid and Homer and elsewhere about gods who did this. And Zeus is quite famous for having come uh, in various ways among the people, Hermes as well, in the guise of humans. I keep using that as like trying to say the guise of because the Greek conception is different in that they're just pretending to be human Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they look like humans and humans Mm -hmm. mistake them for other humans. And so you never quite know whether a person you're interacting with is just a regular guy or whether it's Zeus pretending to be a regular guy. Mm -hmm. Jesus in the Christian story might have been understood that way by some Greek-speaking people who were used to this sort of way of thinking. But the Christian claim about Jesus is not that he was God sort of pretending to be human, but he in fact was an incarnate human. Um, And that's a different idea than what we get here with sort of Greek mythology. But but they're they're really close. They're really far apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to somebody Mm -hmm. who doesn't understand the or have any experience with the way in which they're really far apart, they seem really quite quite similar. Yes. yes. The other distinction here is that if Jesus came among them and they said, you're Zeus, that they would be closer to the reality than when they say that yeah. of Barnabas and Paul, yeah. who are in fact just people mm-hmm. who are enacting God's power. They themselves are in no sense God. And so, yeah, yeah so they're, they're really wrong when they say this about Paul and Barnabas. Yes, yes. They're also really wrong if they said this about Jesus, but they're really wrong in a much more reasonable way. (laughs) (laughs) They're just, they're using the frame of reference that they have to like, you know, put forward their theory of what just happened. Yeah. And it's not crazy. It's not right, right, but it's not crazy. Like Paul does have uh, power that comes from a divine source. Yes in order to be able to do this healing. So it's not crazy that they think he's Hermes. I mean, it's funny to read it it in this context, but but it's not crazy. I also think it's a little bit funny that Paul, who is like, I mean, Paul's got some ego and he gets to be Hermes. (laughs) And (laughs) Barnabas gets to be Zeus. I know, (laughs) yeah. Paul's really chatty. I just think that's kind of funny. Because Paul's chatty. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you're right on, and I appreciate your saying that, that all the people are doing is they're using the categories they've got to explain the thing that they've seen, which is here is a person who enacts power that only gods really should have. How are we going to explain that? Well, they must be gods. So mm-hmm. they've, they've recognized the power, and they've gotten as close as they can get, given the categories that they've got. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it makes me wonder. I mean, I guess I don't know what all Paul was saying when he was speaking beforehand, but like, is it better to like explain first and then do the miracle, or do the miracle to get people's attention and then explain? Or uh, I mean, I guess it all sort of gets sort. Or maybe he, maybe Paul did explain, but people weren't really paying attention until there was this yeah miraculous healing, yeah. which you know was part of the point of doing these healings. I found myself really wanting to know, because it's just like that one little throwaway, sitting there, he heard Paul speaking back in verse eight and nine. Like, but I, like, I really want to know, like, I don't always want to know what Paul's thinking, just to be honest with you. But like right here, I really do. Like, what's he talking about? 
Yeah. Now, I often talk about the book of Acts, and I mean, it varies, but here and then back in early in the book, and there's a quite a similar story, at least the beginning of the story back in Acts chapter three, where Peter and John encounter someone in need of healing and they heal him. And then the people are like, what was going on? And then they preach the gospel. And I like to think of it as, you know, the way Christian mission works in the book of Acts is that first you do an act of mercy and then that Mm -hmm. draws attention Mm -hmm. and then you preach the gospel, which is Mm -hmm. different than yelling at people about the gospel Mm -hmm. and then backing it up with acts of mercy. Mm -hmm. I like to think that's what Paul has done here. I think that's right. It, yeah, it's just then they have to, they did, they just sort of take off so quickly trying to interpret what they've just seen. So then, you know, Paul's got to slow them down. That's exactly right. Hi everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Shall we pick up with how Paul slows him down? Sure. So I'm in verse 14. When the Lord's messengers, Barnabas and Paul, found out this, they tore their clothes in protest and rushed out into the crowd. They shouted, people, what are you doing? We're humans too, just like you. We are proclaiming the good news to you. Turn to the living God and away from such worthless things. He made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he permitted every nation to go its own way. Nevertheless, he hasn't left himself without a witness. He has blessed you by giving you rain from above as well as seasonal harvests and satisfying you with food and happiness. Even with these words, they barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. Mm. So Paul tears his clothes. (laughs) I love that. What are you doing? (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the significance of tearing the clothes and like what what's Paul Uh, yeah I mean tearing clothes is a sort of traditional marker of of deep distress so it could be mourning or it could be if you realize you've done something terribly wrong or I don't know if it's that Paul thinks he has done wrong here or just that he's so distressed that this went so wrong so quickly (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know, if if the whole goal of this healing was evangelism, then this has not gone well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they realize they realize this is bad. I also wonder if in this instance the tearing of the clothes might also be like, look, there's just like there's just like a human mm. body under here. That's there's interesting. Nothing, like I'm not glowing. I'm 
my face is not like lightning or whatever. Yeah. I don't know that that's here, but I, I think one maybe could read it that way. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So what Paul and Barnabas end up doing is pointing away from themselves and pointing toward, turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And so I don't know what I don't know what to say about that other than that move of it's not me. Like you've you've mistaken me for something other than what I am. Yeah. Now turn to the true power who is the God of creation. Which is unfortunately invisible. Right. <laughs> so good luck, Paul. Yeah, I was gesturing as I said. <laughs> Look that. at my imaginary friends. That's yeah. the one who did this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> now, I think that's important because in a Greek speaking world, like you were able to see gods, right? Sometimes they were among you in human guise. Uh, sometimes they were in the temple, at, you know, at, as a statue of the god where the god was yeah. sort of thought to reside. Like there were images of the of gods commonly. And that's the thing about the God of the Bible, both in Judaism and in Christianity, is God is invisible. God is invisible. And it just, it is so hard for humans to deal with a God who is invisible. Mm -hmm. Even now, after thousands of years of having this tradition, you know, in in my community and in yours, it's still hard. And like, it makes me think back to like the golden calf episode when, they, I mean, the people knew theoretically, Israel knew that Moses wasn't God, but once they couldn't see Moses, you know, because he was up on Mount Sinai, they very quickly needed, they they needed something they could see. Right. And so they made this golden calf. And again, I don't know, again, I'm sure that I'm like dancing on the line of various heresies here. I can't, I can't be a heretical Christian because I'm not Christian, right? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think part of what, well, I, I just, I won't say anything other than the fact that like Jesus came in a body. Right. To the people of Jesus's generation, to Jesus's disciples and the people, you know, all the people that Jesus was able to preach to and teach to and heal sort of in his time walking around the earth in his body. Mm-hmm. It, it was this way of making concrete all this yeah. stuff that seemed so ephemeral and and invisible and difficult to you know, just sort of wrap your wrap your hands around. And now here we are just a few years, a, a few years? How many years after Jesus' death? You think yeah, we we're are? somewhere, I would probably 20 years later or something like okay, that. Okay, so 20 years or so later. And and we're remembering again, like, oh yeah, this this is really hard. Yeah. This is yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is, the language is the, the image of the invisible God or something like that. And so just for this moment, in this one instance, there was, you were actually able to, Mm -hmm. in the Christian understanding, see God. Mm -hmm. And then then that seeing is not available to us any longer. Well, we have testimony about it in the scripture, but we don't have, so we're we're back to that same issue of of the invisibleness. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting to me that Paul says he hasn't left, God hasn't left himself without a witness, Mm. but then he doesn't talk about Jesus. He talks about rain and harvests and food and happiness. I mean, he's talking about things that were in the lives of those people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like to be, and I just have, it's really hard for me to imagine how that would land with them to say all of these things that have been provided to you and for you over the course of your life, that was this invisible God doing that. 
yeah. and you didn't know it. Yeah. I don't know if that would be compelling or not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that com- combined with this healing thing that has just happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you came along and were like, you know, the harvests, that's not your gods, that's my god, then people would be like, yeah, whatever. No, like, that's not, not your god, that's my god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but when right. you have just enacted this healing that everyone has acknowledged must be from the gods, mm. and then you say, no, no, it's not from the gods. It's from God. And you already know about God because yeah. rain, harvest, happiness. That's such an interesting, like, rhetorical move. You yeah. already have a relationship yeah. to this God. This God has already been working in your life in some way. Yeah. Now, the details of what that way is and isn't are a little bit confusing to me in this part. But yeah, yeah, you already have had a relationship. Yeah, the verse I sort of skipped over in 16, in the past, God permitted mm-hmm. every nation to go its own way. Mm-hmm. What Paul seems to be saying there is exactly like the the God, the living God has always been giving you harvest, giving you rain, making you happy. And God in the past didn't care if you attributed that to Zeus or to Hermes or to whomever. Mm-hmm. And so you've always been worshiping the tr- true living God. You just didn't know it. But now you got to stop, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now it's been revealed. Now you know who the witness was to. And so it's time to follow that the living God now. I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. I think that makes I think that makes sense. I mean, do you feel like this might be an unfair question, but it sort of is like all along God, you know, didn't really care whether God was acknowledged for these things or not. You could think whatever you think about where these blessings come from. But now God is sort of introducing God's self through this, you know, miraculous healing and 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 saying it's it's time you know that it was really me. Right. I mean, I guess we're only reading a little piece of the story here, but right. it's it so has the nature of the relationship between these people and God like fundamentally shifted? Like maybe God before provided these things sort of basically but didn't have like such a personal relationship to this group of people and now God is saying or Paul is saying, God will have a personal relationship to this people and also wants to be acknowledged by these people. Those two, like, do those two things, I guess those two things go hand in hand? Yeah, I mean, I think, it? I think the way it's working is that God, the living God whom Paul worships has always been the God of the world. Yeah. Up until quite recently in the biblical telling, God had revealed God's self only to Israel Mm-hmm. through the Torah. And so the Jews knew who God was, but nobody else did. And how would how would they? Mm-hmm. And so they sort of worshiped in their own way. Now that Jesus has come and in the Christian understanding, the covenant has been opened to the world. Now it's time for everybody to know. And so there was a period in which it was not possible really to know if you were a Gentile But ever since Jesus, and especially since the story of Cornelius in Acts 10, once Gentiles have started being invited into the community, now it's possible to know, and therefore you need to know, and therefore it's Mm -hmm. not any longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reading this, I was thinking back again to the 
conversations we had. I think about the the wedding party or some of the various parables that we read in the gospel that there was a time in history where there was sort of a neutral area. <laughs> like you yeah. could be sort of inside yeah. or way outside, or there was a sort of a neutral space, but, but now you're either in or out. Like you have to, yeah. you have to decide now yeah. with, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. That's not really yeah. how that quote goes, but that's, yeah. You can't pretend you don't know this. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what's exactly what's happening here, but that's not like in this text, Paul doesn't frame it with that sort of edge to it as like, yeah. now it's time to get going. Yeah. Paul just says he's already, he's been blessing you with rain and harvest and food and happiness. Like this God is the giver of good things. Mm. And so now, you know, <laughs> like this yeah, God who did this miracle for this one guy. Maybe this is part of it. The God who did this immediate miracle for this one guy has been doing this big miracle for you. For as long yeah. as you have known, giving yeah. you rain, giving you food, giving you happiness. And so if you're excited about that thing that just happened, how much more so should you be excited about the God who gives life? That that pushes me back to that something I was saying earlier, Bobby, about how, you know, sometimes right before we got into the conversation about the two-thirds world, but how as as a person steeped in sort of rationalist Western culture that I, it's harder to see, um, harder to see God's miracles, but here they are every day in yeah. the rain and in the joy. And the, yeah. Yeah. Now you kind of want to think we're getting close to <laughs> some sort of understanding here. And then you get verse 18, even <laughs> with these words, they barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. <laughs> so, the, so they're saying this sort of beautiful idea about the invisible God who gives you rain and joy and happiness. And the people seemed like, no, I want to, I want to sacrifice to you, Zeus and Hermes. I don't, I am just struck by the persistence of wanting to keep things in the framework that you already have or something like that. What, what do you do with them still wanting to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas? You know, it's interesting to think about whether it's because they have listened thoughtfully to what Paul and Barnabas are saying and this kind of altered worldview takes some time. Yeah. Or they're basically whipped up into a religious fervor because they just witnessed a yeah. crazy miracle and their heads are exploding and you just yeah. it's hard to just shut that down. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the priest is there, the priest of Zeus and he's uh-huh. on board and like the religious leader you have trusted this whole time. Is, he brought all the stuff from the temple. Yeah. Like they have a whole system set up for this that has mm-hmm. gone, you know, just as our our traditions now have gone from generation to generation, you know, so is theirs. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So the, it would really be a miracle if they just clicked it, <laughs> like clicked it and were like, oh yeah, okay, I get it now. And shifted their, like you're asking them to shift their whole worldview and their whole tradition and everything they have understood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not how it works. Not that fast anyway. That's a really lovely reading. I, I was wanting to be a little judgy <laughs> uh, and say, sort of back to your earlier point about how much humans really want visible, tangible, yes. worshipable, uh-huh. like right there in front of you. 
uh, answers to things. And it's really hard for these folks to give that up in, in light of this sort of profound but more abstract sense yes. of a God that you cannot see, but who has given you rain and crops and happiness. Yeah. Maybe that just doesn't seem like enough or doesn't seem tangible enough. Right. Yeah, we want to feel like we're doing doing something. We're yeah. doing something with our. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. We are we're very we're we are very <laughs> embodied creatures. We humans. I don't know. Yeah. We want some kind of sensory experience. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Amy. So, thinking about this text and thinking about modern world, where do you connect the two? Bobby, this. This, uh, this might be a sort of a strange thing, but what sort of came up for me reading this text was, have you ever, maybe we even talked about it, the book, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. That sounds familiar. I haven't read it. I, have, I haven't read the whole thing. I've read parts of it. But the reason that I'm thinking of it is that a lot of the book is, you know, she talks about this phenomenon where we come to sort of, I mean, she wouldn't use the word worship, but we're, we're worshiping the proverbial container not mm. the force within the container. And so she talks about it in the in gatherings. Here, I mean th- that's what's happening. Like they see this holiness moving through Paul and the capacity that that holiness has and they cannot extricate that from the the container that it's currently in, yeah. which is Paul. Yeah. And I think in religious community, I mean, sometimes it might be people, but sometimes it might be sort of the rights of our community or the melodies that we use or the traditions that we have or whatever. That again, like as as these embodied mm. sensory creatures, we associate the holiness with whatever container it was in. And then when that container goes away or doesn't make sense anymore or becomes a distraction or whatever, it's so hard for us to... Mm. Un- untangle those things from each other. I really love that. And so then we we try to offer sacrifices. No, we <laughs> hopefully don't go that far. But I just feel a lot of, I just, um, this feels like such a human story of like a human encounter with like truly holy energy in the world. And we, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. We don't know what to do with it. So- yeah, I, I I relate to these people and their desire to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. Yeah, and thinking about the ways that I create and my communities create sort of visible or auditory or other representations and say that that's the way God is and how much trouble we have letting go of those things and, and embracing other, other embodiments of the same spirit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's all going to be embodied that. somehow because we're yeah. we live in bodies, and that's just that's that's fine. That's as it, it, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I really love that, Amy. I was thinking something similar in the ways that we sometimes confuse the physical forms in which we encounter God with God, and the ways that that can be tempting for us ourselves. Like I, I'm actually really impressed with Paul and Barnabas that they were like, no, no, no. Like there is a part of me and a part of many humans, I think, who kind of like it when people sort of seem to worship us a little bit. Mm. And so I like, I'm really impressed with those guys that they were like, no, 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 this is not me. Mm-hmm. So, so I, so I love that. The other piece that I'm toying with is this idea of God's 
miraculous presence in ways that appear sort of mundane to us because they happen every day. You know, the sun comes up. Yeah. The rain comes down. The flowers bloom. The food grows. That's just the background stuff, Bobby. Where are the miracles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and I mean, I think I, I think I fall into that trap where the, the, like, the miracles of life become mundane to me. And I feel the need for something more or something other or something more striking. And, you know, sometimes there is a need for that. But just to sort of em- embrace the, the miracle that is there. And I love this list. I especially love that, at least in the CEB, it ends with happiness, right? Mm-hmm. The rain, seasonal yeah. harvest, satisfying food, and happiness. Yeah. And just the fact that there is happiness is a miracle and that is in a gift of God. I really love thinking about that. And I'm somebody who can focus on the difficulties and the, uh, the ways in which life is not as it should be. And I think there is a time and place for that for sure, but not letting that get in the way of saying the fact that there is a capacity for life and plenty and happiness, like that is the evidence We need evidence for God, maybe. Like, that's the evidence. There it is. That's the witness. I really like that. I probably don't land very often on I want to try to appreciate the subtleties of life more. But that's kind of where I am today. I want to to appreciate the miracles. Yeah, Mm. it's a good place to land. All right, Amy. Well, next week, I don't know. We're moving into the Paul's letter to the Romans which I think is going to be I think it's going to be good. It's a profoundly important text in the Christian tradition. It is probably going to be difficult in the ways that Paul's letters are sometimes difficult especially for our interfaith conversation, but we'll do we'll, We we'll like do a we challenge, right, Bobby? We do like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so next week we'll be in Romans 1, uh, 1 to 17. I look forward to it. I'll see you Me then. Me too. See ya. Bye. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dan O'Song. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll begin our exploration of Paul's letter to the Romans with Romans 1, 1 to 17. Until then, keep on digging.